Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 31, where we're traveling back to 1973 and the 28th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, an old favorite, Elliot Carter for his string quartet number three. So, Andrew, here we are. Back we, again with Elliot Carter. Back again with Elliot Carter. He won back in 1960 also for a string quartet. For number his, two. Number two, right. So we don't need to go through how we learned about Carter no. or information because we've already done that. I do think it's interesting, though, that third string quartets are magic. They for the seem Pulitzer. to be. So yeah. we have Kirchner, 1967 winner. Uh, Husa, 1969, and now Elliot Carter. So like six years, three winners were a third string quartet, which is just kind of bizarre. It is. And the fact that it's also string quartet seems to be the genre, the hip genre now. It is. These last... It's not opera. Yep. We had that whole run of opera in the yep. 1950s, and now we're or symphonies string back quartets in the early when it first days. started. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been a lot of like string quartets now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and going to be an interesting conversation i think because i think we were generally pretty positive about the second string quartet we we talked a lot about its context and how it was written uh and carter himself being kind of a fascinating figure he's this super erudite high modernist academic composer but yet he also has some very creative ideas about uh, how the pieces should be heard and performance techniques and was very popular among a certain type of performance. Well, you also see the arc of his career that he started out. He was like a Copeland clone, writing neo-romantic, studied with Nadia Boulanger. So he was, if we were in the 1940s, he would have been perfect to win at that time. Right. And now we're in the 60s, 70s. And once again, he's perfect to win, but he's changed his musical language to this high modern aesthetic that we've seen basically since 1965 in the Pulitzers, they really wanted to award. So he he modulated his music. I don't. He didn't do this to win the Pulitzer. Yeah. Obviously, he didn't go. I'm going to win a Pulitzer <laughs> and change my music. But it happened to fit the way his his career has gone has mirrored the shift of the Pulitzer away from that kind of more populist style that we heard early on. We were getting Appalachian Spring winning to now when we're getting Kirchner and Husa winning. Right? right. It's a very different kind of Pulitzer they're giving out. And even in our last one, which was uh, Jacob Druckmann, right? That was our... Windows. Yeah, Windows. That was some different techniques that actually, in a strange way, kind of appear here. In they do, s- interestingly. Some extent. Yeah, even though the, the I think the oral effect is quite different. Very different. <laughs> and and we, we haven't talked about what we We have not talked about. about. That's right. Just like we did for... For the windows for Druckmann, that you yeah. were surprised that I was kind of favorable for it, and you were definitely not favorable for it. Miss. So now yeah. we'll see where we land as we move to tell the story. Telling the story. Sorry, right, Elliot Carter, here we are, uh, 1960s and 70s. He's teaching at Juilliard. Uh, the way this piece comes about is the Juilliard Quartet asks him for a piece, and that's the, the basis of him writing this new quartet. You know, over a decade since he wrote the first, well, the first one, his second string quartet. It's been a decade since he had a quartet. Uh, and you can actually trace out his kind of career over his quartets because about every 10 years he seemed to churn out another quartet. Um, and we'll see Elliot Carter back again one more time for the Pulitzer. <laughs> uh, he was a perennial, also ran. 
Um, but I want to give you a quote actually to get us started because we've we've talked about Carter's life, we've talked about yeah. his, his career, um, but I want to give you a quote from Richard Truscan who's always good for us. <laughs> oh, a memorable quote with well-written choice words. Always with Truscan. Yeah. So this is about Carter. This was written toward the end of Carter's life. And he said, Carter was as emblematic a figure on one side of the Cold War divide as was, say, Tikhon Nikolaevich Krinikov on the other. Both were well-trained, highly competent makers. Both produced works that defined a standard of orthodoxy, of exemplary values given a model realization within their respective milieu. Both were beneficiaries of organized prestige machines. <laughs> Both were insulated from negative critique. Both were rewarded with every prize and prerequisite of rank within the power of their respective milieu to bestow, and both enjoyed major careers and achieved true historical significance. And in Carter's case, as he approached his 100th birthday, genuine if relatively minor media celebrity, <laughs> without having any real audience for their work. This is one of the things that the Cold War made possible. Any account of such careers that does not emphasize the role of propaganda in their maintenance mm is an example of that propaganda. I would say that's damning, not even with faint praise. That's just, that's damning. just damning, yeah. yeah. I just love that he calls them highly competent makers. Makers, yeah. Well, that's kind of true. Uh, there, there are these composers, we've talked about some of them, that are in a way insulated because they're just seen as these models and kind of high intellectuals who are just so mm -hmm. above it all and kind of the, the grand dames or the deans of, of American music. And yeah. Carter is one of those people because as we, when we get into the piece itself, it is a, a very creative and complex uh, conception of mm -hmm. this work. But listening to it, and it's, as, as you said here, or Stereskin said, have almost no audience appreciates the music, that is kind of a, uh, a, a true fact about it. And what's interesting is something else here. He's a composer who views his composition as a means of communication, yet it's extremely academic. And it is. Well, I think Truscan's right. He doesn't have an audience. No. If you go talk to the standard <laughs> person, it'd be interested to go look on Spotify and see what the playing of Elliot Carter, but there are people who enjoy Carter. Yeah. And he did get... Every, so it's just, here's just a list of some of the awards. I mean, this idea of this prestige machine, right? So we, we've talked about the Pulitzer Prize in 1960. He was uh, elected a member in the 60s of the Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Yep. Um, he won the Edward McDowell Award. Uh, he got from the President of the United States the National Medal of Arts. Uh, he was inducted into the American Classical Music Hall of Fame. I really? Mean, <laughs> just kind of named, he got the Thomas Jefferson Medal by the American Philosophical Society. I mean, you just kind of go through the awards that this uh, man won, and it's just remarkable <laughs> how decorated he was for having very little impact, frankly, on the development of American music. Like Everyone talks about him. He's endlessly studied. Uh, just go look him up in a music theory journal. And oh, he is there's a, actually, an, in fact, a whole journal dedicated to, to his music. Yeah, dedicated to Carter. Uh, and he gets played in the Academy, but... Who would you say is a true follower of Carter as a composer? I couldn't answer Who's that. Who's in the Carter school? Yeah, there's not really. He's kind of this singular uh, singular person. And I think that's a fascinating thing that Truscan mentions is this 
this last sentence, right? The role of propaganda in the maintenance is an example of that propaganda in the maintenance of his career. Well, let's think about that too. Are there other composers in this time period? I, I, let's take the foil of John Cage, for example. Tereskin, I think I remember reading that he also makes the point that that uh, Cage's whole image is constructed as he's this kind of free spirit and everything, but he was actually very modernist and very hardcore about it. Yeah, you followed his rules. He followed his rules, and yet he was also uh, supported by the propaganda. He of, was. Yeah, he knew how to work the media and all of that in a different way. He, But he was actually influential, I'd say, much more than Carter. Well, and if you think about the Cold War divide and you have the Soviet on one side saying, we need music for the masses, music for the people, this so socialist realist yeah. music, uh, the antithesis of that would be hardcore modernist for the elite. And that's who <laughs> was recognized at this point in history. And we're talking about the 60s and the 70s. At that point in history, kind of the height of the Cold War, that really is who, at least in the United States, in terms of winning awards, who was recognized were these hardcore modernists like Elliot Carter. Yeah. So he was absolutely part of that. And that's why I think partially he had so the, the career that he had. I'm not saying he was not a competent maker in the no, words of no, Tereskin. No, no, certainly. Uh, obviously a very competent composer. Uh, but, but that idea that he could be held up as this kind of paragon of um, what American composition was at the time, I think is a, a fascinating idea. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking in some of our previous winners... To the, at least in the most recent years, they're also academics and very of that period, of that place. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think Carter seems, he's the dean of academic He is the dean of academic that. He composers. really is. He really is. Yeah. So maybe it's time to go Behind the Notes. Behind the Notes. All right. We usually have to start with the oh. program note. Oh, boy. Yeah. Just as a way to begin to get into, because I, I have to say, uh, of the... Uh, 30 episodes that we have recorded of this podcast so far. 31 here with Elliot Carr's String Quartet. This is perhaps the most dense piece oh that we have God. possibly discussed. So, you know, hang on, <laughs> strap in. This is going to be a bumpy ride. So this is how Carter describes the String Quartet commissioned by the Juilliard School for the Juilliard String Quartet. He says, it divides the instruments into pairs and literally on stage... I don't know if you watched any videos, but I watched some videos of... There's the groups. Jack Quartet. I watched the Jack yeah. Quartet, too, and they literally sit the duos far enough away that you can hear it as one, but you visually see. Yeah. So a duo of violin and cello that plays in rubato style, so more free, and then you have a duo of violin and viola that is going to keep a strict regular rhythm. The violin-cello duo presents four different musical characters, an angry, intense furioso a fanciful, leggerissimo, a pizzicato giocoso, and a lyrical andante espressivo in short sections, one after the other in various orders, sometimes with pauses between. That's one duo. The violin-viola duo, meanwhile, presents six contrasting characters listed in the program. During the quartet, each character of each duo is presented alone and also in combination with each character of the other duo to give a sense of ever-varying perspectives of feelings, expression, rivalry, and cooperation. And to complicate it even further, each movement and each duo has intervals associated with them. Yeah, each one is a specific a interval. A specific interval. So duo one in those four movements you mentioned, we have the, the Furioso has a major seventh is the interval they explore. 
the Ligerissimo is a perfect fourth, and Dante Espressivo minor sixth, and Pizzicato Giacoso minor third. And then the other duo also has them too. The ten movements are not played continuously, but are fragmented and recombined to produce 24 possible pairings of movements between duos, as well as the solo statements. Then there's a coda with 35 sections in the piece. <laughs> I know, you just start to get into it and your head begins to just spin. Yeah, and, and I can say, you know, I have the score here. I thought, I'll sit down and listen to it with the score. I couldn't get past the I first follow page. It. I was <laughs> I, I completely I was agree. It started going because you've got different tempi going on and trying to see how they match up is just mind-boggling. It is. It is. Mind-boggling. Thank you for whoever on YouTube happened yes, to put the but... video that has the scrolling. Yeah. So that's the only way I could keep up with what was going yeah. on uh, because it is just dizzying the amount of complexity that's going into putting this thing together. Is there any more piece that's like more in your face introduction than this piece with to like, modernism to modern or just, Carter, it, no, like, like any piece? I just, can't imagine one. It, I can't imagine one. Just the sense of disorientation and just being completely lost from oh, the get go. It, it's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely uh, remarkable. It really is a remarkable achievement. I mean, yes. we have to say to put this together is a completely remarkable achievement. There's a, uh, a new book. Uh, that just came out, I think, last year by Laura Emery yeah. uh, on the um, compositional process of just the string quartets <laughs> of just trying to figure out how he did this, a whole chapter just on how he put this together, looking at the sketches and trying to figure it out. Um, and even doing that is really difficult uh, because trying to figure out how the sketch material and navigating it is uh, almost impossible to just trying to trace his path of putting this together because, I mean, it really is, it's hard to overstate the complexity of the design of this particular string quartet. Yes, exactly. And uh, there's a good article that we found by Andrew Mead, who's mm -hmm. a theorist at uh, Indiana University now, uh, where he wrote about this piece called Pitch Structure in Elliot Carter's String Quartet Number no. 3. And he makes the point, and this is a, a term that we don't, people are very gingerly bringing it up that's saying that is Carter a 12-tone composer or not? Mm -hmm. He does make the case that there's a vertical 12 bar or 12 pitch class set or kind of it's all presented that mm -hmm. way and it is serial in a lot of ways and that would make sense to me. Yeah, uh, I mean to me it's it's fully atonal. Yeah, oh, completely. And that's the yeah. way that he achieves that atonality. He's not using the, the kind of Schoenbergian no. serial procedures. That doesn't no. mean that he's not using all 12 tones and he's not using it in a very structured fashion. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that's interesting about this uh, Emory book is just kind of going through and seeing how he figured out the drafts that he made to figure out the com combination of intervals. So you've got these individual movements that are focusing on an interval. So how are you going to combine them to get different intervalic structures so that each section sounds different and but still work together to inform the larger design of the work? It's just that's yeah, the intellectual capacity to uh, to understand and conceive of such a work is really is yeah remarkable would be a good word for it and that of course raises the question then how does it sound yeah well i want to i want to play yeah. a little section uh just about three or four minutes into the piece so the piece is 20 minutes one movement no stop it just goes <laughs> even though it, he you know you have the four characters Sections, in yeah. duo one and the six characters in duo two um and then the code i mean Right, you can follow along, and if you're looking at the score, you can see as you move between sections, he clearly labels it all. But uh, trying to hear it is the, is the difficulty. So this is an early section um, where you'll hear uh, one of the duos playing by itself, 
uh, in the uh, Legarissimo, and then moving into the Grazioso, so the other section will come in. And I think this makes it uh, apparent, because you get to hear one by itself for just a little bit, and then when the other comes in, uh, you'll hear this kind of lyrical slow movement take over. And then Carter tells you in the score where he wants one to kind of dominate in terms of dynamics. So he clearly shows, all right, now duo one should take over from duo two and should hear it. But putting this together, and this is about a 35, 40 second uh, little clip, I think you can hear the complexity because you hear one come in and then the next come in. So get this playing. Absolutely, uh, flawlessly, <laughs> no problems. I mean, it's like different planes of reality. Yeah. And yeah. this interesting kind of stereophonic sound that you have here in the audience listening, and you have one duo coming into one here, basically, and another duo coming in the other ear, and your brain's trying to make sense of it, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know how your brain makes sense oh, no. of it, because there is just so much going on. There is. And some of these ideas we, we already had heard in the second quartet, uh, there was still some of that, the personality of... Yeah, the instruments. Instruments, yeah, the instruments that way. And that, I do think, and I'm not just being partisan here, but the, it does come from Ives, because, you know, Carter was not a fan of Ives' use of quotation mm -hmm. or the pitch material that Ives used, but he liked his use of textures. And, yeah. his, and Ives' second string quartet also has characters they go up to the mountain and they mm -hmm. argue and discuss and then they all shut up, sit down, yeah, shut up, <laughs> sit down. Yes, exactly. They've got the whole program that mm -hmm. goes with it. This is continuing in that tradition mm -hmm. that Ivesian tradition, but at a completely different intellectual level and almost an incomprehensibility. Well, what do you think about the, the polyrhythms? So you mentioned Ives and to me, yeah. that's, that's a characteristic of Ives. Oh, yeah. The kind of polyrhythmic structure. I mean, the rhythms going on in this are just mind-boggling. Yeah, they're um, insane. Is the, do you think that's, that's a continuation? Because, of course, he had this relationship with Ives as yeah. a young man. He knew Ives' music very well, as you've shown in your article. Yeah. Is this something, again, that we see Ives' influence in the use of rhythm here? Oh, definitely, definitely. I think so. I think it's, it's, it's more of a spatial and a temporal mm. look at rhythm, uh, where there's this ebbing and flowing and as you said when you introduced the piece that the set the duo one is playing quasi rubato mm -hmm. and so you do have this kind of pushing and pulling of the time and so the rhythms are going to pop in and out and be extremely they'll they'll, they'll make rhythms by composite uh, composite forms when things come together they'll yeah. you'll get a new set of sounds and ives was very interested in that too so i mean looking at the score i, I can't count any of these rhythms almost they're so complex and then putting them together yeah. is just another story altogether so yeah no absolutely and the other thing about it that's really fascinating to me besides just the polyrhythms is the fact that just as you were saying this kind of interest in time and space yeah. that he wasn't playing with in the second quartet that you really get a sense of so there's just the physicality of the separation of space on the stage 
But even as you listen to it, because he takes the time to have sometimes a duo play by itself and then the other duo play by itself and sometimes together, that you do get this kind of telescoping of time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it seems to kind of rush and then sometimes you feel like you're just kind of floating and then you'll rush again and then you'll just be kind of... So you get this real push and pull in terms of the way that you temporally experience the piece. Some of that I wonder is done through techniques because the part I did really like was there's this pizzicato. I love that pizzicato section, yeah. Yeah, and it just feels like a lot's going on. It's about a third of the way into the mm -hmm, piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that to me was really effective in getting the spatial and time sense of things. Where are we? What's going on? Is it so dreamy? Mm -hmm. And then it, then it kicks back in with the in-your-face yeah. stuff. So there's, it, it just, uh, yeah. So I think there is some ability to hear some of what's going on, but there's a lot of it that just is right way over my head <laughs> well i think it's one of those that the more you listen to it the more you would hear the, yeah the question is do you want to give the time that it takes to get into it that would require you i mean first listen it's oh, incomprehensible yeah absolutely second listen you begin to hear things so maybe <laughs> third fourth listen then you're slowly beginning to kind of uh, comprehend it but i mean even the number of times that we've listened to it to get ready for this i'm still me too I'm nowhere near comprehending what in the world L.A. Cardinal was doing with this piece. I really need uh, to sit down. I mean, right, the, the Andrew Mead article that you mentioned that we read, um, I need guides like that to, yeah. to read before I go and sit down and listen to the piece to begin to make sense of it. Just sitting down in a concert with a program note would not be enough to prepare. Oh, no. And the way new music works nowadays, you get one, one hearing. And you're done. And you're done. And I think of the Jack Quartet, which we recommend. We'll post that in the the show notes, uh, but you can actually see their performance. The, and they're a top quartet in the country for new music. And to the amount of effort, I'm just guessing. Oh, remarkable. To have to learn this piece is. Yeah, absolutely remarkable. Yeah. So, well, should we uh, go to our, see how the reception went and then the hit or miss? Hit or miss? All right, so we always like to begin with what the the jury said when they were awarding this, and then we'll look and see what the critics had to say. So, yeah, so this was performed on uh, January twenty third, nineteen seventy three, at Juilliard, so his home base, by the Juilliard Quartet. The concert was, oh wow, starting out with a Haydn string quartet, one of his last ones, Opus seventy seven, number two, then the Carter Quartet, and then Ravel on the second half. So interesting yeah. combination there. Uh, so then we have Professor Hohenberg, our good friend. The jury, going to be some favorite names on this one, respectfully submits the following recommendations. Number one, the jury's first choice by Australian ballot. Hmm. I don't know what that means. Is String Quartet Number 3 by Elliot Carter. This is an impressive and to some extent enigmatic work by a major American composer who has already re received recognition by the Pulitzer Committee. In this work, Carter is proceeding logically and powerfully along the path he had pursued for more than 20 years, which combines a rigorous intellectual control of musical materials with an intuitive exploration of opposing textures in the tradition of Charles Ives. Oh, so the mm -hmm. jury was noting the things that we heard. They noticed it. The jury's second choice is the concertino for chamber orchestra by Roger Sessions. A runner-up again, poor Roger Sessions. Is always a bridesmaid. Always a bridesmaid. <laughs> <laughs> poor Roger Sessions. 
and so the committee, William Bergsma, chairman, mm. Hugo Weisgall, of course, of course, and George Crumb. Oh, so now we're getting we're beginning to see this that yep. previous winner is going to show up and help decide help the decide. Pulitzer. Yes, so that year they received sixty three compositions for selection. So what do you think about yeah, those those pieces? So again, two highly academic composers. Highly and academic, and very dissonant. Yeah, very atonal. Yeah. So I can see why they would want them. And if you look at the names of those people who are on the jury, you can see that they are composers who would be more favorable towards uh, a piece like this. I mean, George Crumb yeah. is as different as his music is. The idea of the string quartet basically acting, right? I mean, it's kind of ritualistic the way that he's oh, put yeah. it on the stage. I can see that that appealing to someone like George Crumb, especially his characters. Didn't he write a very famous quartet a few years just earlier? Just a few years earlier yeah. that, that had uh, stretching the boundaries of the string quartet yep. just in his own ways. Yeah. So, hmm. Well, Donald Hennihan of the New oh, York yes, Times, another, of course, was there at the oh. first performance. He says, Elliot Carter's string quartet number three, given its first performance on Tuesday night at Alice Tully Hall, is an enigmatic, again, fiercely argued, extraordinarily difficult work, even for Mr. <laughs> Carter, who has never tried hard to please the casual feed-up listener, <laughs> which is also a kind of Ives quote. That there. is a good Ives quote. If Mr. Carter did not actually set out to compose a piece that one of the greatest string quartets would have to sweat blood over, <laughs> the effect was the same. The Juilliard Quartet, which played the premiere with intense dedication, is reported to feel that the Carter is the hardest thing it ever tackled. After the premiere, quartet and composer were awarded a warm ovation, and such craftsmanship rated it. On the whole, however, Mr. Carter reveled in technical and compositional problems of a sort that gave the new work a somewhat dry and theoretical tone. To say the least. Wow. Yeah, so I think this is fascinating. And in fact, the Juilliard Quartet, um, I think it's the cello part he had to rewrite because it was too difficult. And so the original publication of the quartet had that kind of reduced... And then when he reissued it in the 1980s or 90s, uh, he put back in because he said, quartets today can handle this <laughs> and put back in the more difficult part. Ooh. So even the Juilliard Quartet at the time, as uh, Hinehan said, had to sweat blood over putting, <laughs> putting this together. So does that kind of encapsulate the, well, they've used this word enigmatic. That was in the jury report and in this review. It was. I think it does. I mean, yeah. it's... <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on in this work. Right. Uh, so did you figure out, is this a hit or a miss for you? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a fan of a lot of Carter's music. You are. Uh, I'm going to have to rate this one a miss, though, because... <gasps> I am shocked at I, this. I, I knew that this was going to be a hit for you. I you just did. knew coming in. Yeah, I knew coming in no, this was going to be a hit. I respect the brain power and the intellectual mm. ferocity that it took to come up with this, and it is really a brilliant conception mm -hmm. and idea to create all of this stuff. But I, I think as, as my former composition teacher, John Melby at the University of Illinois would say, music is meant to be heard after all. <laughs> and it's for that reason, I think it's a miss because it, it's, I, I just have a hard time mm -hmm. approaching this as a listener yeah. and it's just too much for me. As a theorist, yeah, you, you could write books on just this. Well, someone People did. Have, yeah. yeah, so there's so much going on. But as a piece, 
I'd have to rate this one a miss. Okay. So how about you, Ander? Well, you know, Hinahan said that this is a somewhat dry theoretical <laughs> tone. I would say somewhat is too generous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I found my, my attention wandering. <laughs> Something would pique my interest. I'd listen to a little bit, and then I'd be all like, theoretical. So this is definitely a miss for me. Yeah. <laughs> I just could not get into this work. And no. I tried. I read. I listened. I, mm -hmm. I tried. Um yeah, this is just way too dry. Like you, yeah. I, I, I get it on a conceptual level. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Um, it just didn't come across to me in performance. I recognize that this is incredibly difficult. Oh. And the work a string chord has to put in to be able to do this is just remarkable. But to me, and Carter always talked about, even in his program note, about the expression. Um, what did he say in the, the program note that this is a feelings, expression, rivalry, and cooperation, which I did not get at all. Not at all. <laughs> I got the rivalry part. <laughs> um, but the feeling and expression just did not come through to me in this one. And some of Carter's music, it actually does. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying that Carter is one of these composers that is so academic that he never has any kind of expression. I find some of Carter's music incredibly expressive. This one just did not do it for me. No, we liked it. We gave the second quartet yeah, the second a quartet positive. Wonderful. That yeah. was a hit. But this one... Yeah, I mean, I go back to that quote that I think I said in the second quartet that Carter said, his music, he's trying to depict daily life in Manhattan and what it's like on the street. He said, I'm not writing in the style of 18th century gaslights and, <laughs> and buggies. You know, this is 1950, 1973 New York City, but must have been a pretty crazy place. I don't know if I want to be in New York City I in do not <laughs> the early think so. 1970s. No. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com. We also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about Elliot Carter, and we'll post that Jack Quartet video for you. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode when we discuss a composer so admired by other composers that Perspectives of New Music published a 292-page tribute to him in 1991, but we bet you've never heard a lick of his music. <laughs> Donald Martino for his chamber work, Notturno. Until then, keep listening. Mm -hmm.